Welcome to Helpful Social Work. Social work has the power to change people's lives for the better. This podcast aims to help you learn, think and act with integrity so people who need social work get help that will transform their lives. I'm Jo. And I'm Jerry, and this is our second podcast of Series 5. And we're doing a set of podcasts about what makes a good social worker. So we're recording this um, at the start of May 2020. Every month we're posting a podcast um, that looks at the ingredients of a great social worker. We started last month with the overall ingredients and we're now going to look at each of the domains of the professional capabilities framework in England. So those domains are really um, relevant to social work in any place in, in, in the UK or in any other country. And the domains are ethics and values, equality and diversity, rights, justice and economic well-being, knowledge, skills and intervention, analysis and critical reflection, professionalism, contexts and organisations and professional leadership. And we also want to take um, the opportunity to thank you for continuing to listen to us. Uh, Our last podcast on ethics in COVID-19 has already had hundreds of downloads. We really hope that's been helpful to you. Uh, The numbers in Australia were up quite a lot in April. So thank you, my fellow Aussies. And uh, we're also starting to get quite a few listeners in Israel, so welcome. Do tell us what you think. You can do this by visiting our website, www.helpfulsocialwork.com, or commenting on iTunes or on our Facebook page, Helpful Social Work Podcast. We do want to hear from you. And this um, podcast, we're going to be talking about the ethics and values domain. So the professional capabilities framework covers knowledge and skills and the values that that kind of support us in our practice. And what it says about the ethics and values domain is that um, this is about applying social work ethical principles and values to guide professional practices. And social workers have an obligation to um, use the code of ethics, and that includes working in partnership with people who use services, promoting human rights and social justice, and keeping a constant understanding of the value base of the profession and evolving that as we go through our career. Um, So we're going to home in on the capabilities that are focused on experienced social worker level. And there's different levels of your career in the capabilities framework from student right through to strategic. But experienced social worker is kind of when you've been in practice for a couple of years um, and you've you've got a fair amount of confidence and competence as a social worker. And what's expected of people there is that you ensure your practice is underpinned by commitment to working in partnership and managing the boundaries that go with that, being confident in applying ethical reasoning to the way you practice and to challenging people, Um, being able to critically reflect on your own values and others and manage those conflicting values and dilemmas um, using the sources of support that are around you, making sure that you follow uh, policy and procedures and law and kind of scaffolding that helps you to manage ethics and then maintaining your kind of professional integrity around managing privacy, promoting trust and being accountable for the decisions you make. Right, that's quite a quite a, um, a a lot of things for us to be thinking about, isn't it, Jerry? And um, what's behind the domain is is um, we're going to try and unpick that now. And social work is an ethical activity above all else, and that's because it affects people's lives. And it's always been rooted in the ideas of morality. 
but over time, our understanding of morality has really shifted from the idea of doing good, and 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 that I guess that concept of good depended on what was dominant in what society at what time. It's moved towards upholding human rights, and increasingly, um, we've seen it also including the ethics of partnership, which which is to my mind, um, absolutely critical in uh, forming a good social work relationship. And the Social Work Code of Ethics, it's an international code and it covers these main areas. And the first area is human rights. The second area is social justice. And the third is professional integrity. And I think because social work is an activity that can be carried out with a lot of state sanctions or state interventions, such as child protection, mental health, when we judge people's capacity to be able to self-determine. Um, and because human rights are not applied evenly across the world, and they're also different across different social and economic settings within society, a, a strong ethical framework that we attend to in our practice is absolutely crucial. If we look across the history of social work, we can see that social work hasn't always been a force for good. Actually, there are many examples where disadvantaged groups could demonstrate, for example, that state intervention in their life was not justified. Um, and in particular, I always, when I think of that, I, I remember the um, involvement of the social work profession in the removal of Aboriginal children in Australia um, from the 50s to the 70s. So, you know, social workers really need to have ethical terms of reference to draw on to support them in making the best decisions they can about their own actions and behaviours in practice, because it's not always as clear cut as politics, the public and the media would suggest. Um, each individual who takes on the role of social worker has to be able to calibrate their actions to their ethical code and then be willing to constantly scrutinise their behaviours against that code. I think the thing that makes that really tricky is that ethics are not really fixed. There's not a clear set of answers mm. for what do I do in this, that or the other situation? What would be the best thing a human can do? Because there is so much context around it. So mm. it's more like a moral map. Um, and you know, our ethics aren't immune from bias or ambiguity. So they're concerned with what's good for individuals and society um, and the word comes from the Greek ethos which can mean custom habit character or disposition so it's not it's not a law it's mm -hmm. a it's much more subjective than that and it changes depending on who we are where we are what the context is around us and yeah they, they there is a school of thought that there's some kind of ethical truths that we can Discovering a lot, a lot of times that was um, that's been allied to particular kind of religious beliefs, for example. Mm. Um, and, you know, another school of thought is that human beings invent ethical truths. Um, I kind of like to think of it as, as if we're trying to follow a code of ethics, what we are doing is essentially kind of exploring the unnavigated territory of our own and other people's lives and trying to keep on some firm ground as we go um, and particularly get a really strong sense of when we're going off track um, and being able to come back onto track and I think we can only do that with the help of other people so you know the best thing I think that ethics can really do for us is to help us think more clearly 
about where we're standing and is it mm. firm ground or not. I think that's I, I love that um, saying the unnavigated terrain of ours and others' lives because that that already um, really brings in that partnership idea, doesn't it? And the idea that an ethical person cannot act alone. You can't you can't act in a little uh, silo. Actually, the the ethics require you to explore other people's terrain and reasoning, um, and as you say, to come to a place of firm ground. Um, and and that's you know I mean I like so when I look back over my career in social work, which started um, in the disability field in the last eighties in the in the late eighties, um, and I wasn't a qualified social worker then. I was a uh, I had a, a qualification that was a residential care worker from Kangaroo Point TAFE College in Brisbane. That was what I had, and. Um, when I look back then, there was a lot more what I would call paternalism in the day-to-day -day approach to working with people with disabilities. The language was much more limiting and labelling. Decision-making was rarely done in genuine consultation with the person with disability and not really even done as it should have been with family members. So that idea of ethics of partnership were not practised fully. However, there were several exciting things happening at the time, I'd just like to say. Social role valorization, which was a theory developed by Wolf Wolfensberger, was, was really considered to be cutting edge at the time. And the idea of it was that this, um, the good things any society has to offer are more easily accessible to people who have valued social roles and that people who have devalued social roles or very few or marginalised one have much harder time obtaining the good things. So the idea was to work with people with disabilities to give them valued social roles and positive status um, so that they could be involved much more in any given culture. And so in my practice, that meant actually helping people with disabilities move from very big institutions where they had been living into the community, into much smaller homes where they could participate much more um, in community life, um, looking at mainstream schooling wherever possible rather than segregation and um, kind of making sure that people with disabilities um, had the fullest participation in all areas of the community that they could. And it did feel like a good and helpful endeavour to be involved in. It felt like it was definitely done under the ethics of human right and doing good, but it still wasn't a very consultative or affirmative process um, because there wasn't enough focus on the individual, even though personal budgets were being trialled at the time. Um, they, it, people found themselves, you know, they could find themselves living in a house with other people they didn't know or they hadn't consented to live with because of the logistics rather than because it suited the individual. So, um, you know, but social justice was very much in the thinking of social workers in the 80s and 90s, but it just didn't always translate into participative partnership practice between social workers and the people they were engaging with. Yeah, I think the disability field is a really good, um, you know, looking at the story of how that's that work with people living with disabilities has evolved. Um, it's actually, it's a really good kind of case study of how ethical understanding and application has changed. Um, and like you say, you know, there's still quite a long way to go now. Mm. And one of the thing that re things that really intrigues me about ethics and values is that 
we don't know what we don't know yet. So mm. people in, engaged in activities that we now look back on and think that was really unethical yeah wouldn't have thought so at the time and so for me an example would be in in the early 2000s when I first qualified arranging for people to leave hospital and maybe move into a care home if they didn't have capacity we didn't have a mental capacity act and our understanding of how to determine best interests and how to help people have a voice um, was nothing like as ethically and legally robust as it became in 2005 mm. when the Mental Capacity Act came in, but that didn't mean that at the time I thought that I wasn't doing good social work um, or being ethical. So you've always got to kind of keep an open mind, a questioning mind about what are we not doing? And, and that capability of partnership, I just want to kind of pick up on different bits from the capabilities. Um, the, the partnership one, that's commitment to working in partnership. I think there's still lots of areas where we think, oh, I can't quite work in partnership with this person or this group of people though because there's these particular barriers and I suppose the challenge to ourselves that you you can communicate with a baby you can communicate with somebody who has profound learning disabilities and, and can't speak you can communicate mm. with somebody who has is living with very advanced dementia and can't um, can't seem to retain things either so our understanding of how we can communicate and work in partnership is expanding all the time and I think there's still lots of areas where we're, we're not um, pushing the ethical boundaries as far as we can, not pushing that ethic as far as we can. Mm. I think that's very fair to say. And the other thing that I would kind of reflect on is that for me, and once again, I'm more than happy to, to hear people um, coming back about this, but I felt that social work was a lot more politicised and radical in the 80s um, and lots of social workers questioned the role of state in people's lives and also questioned about what they were being asked to do in day-to-day -day practice. Um, now, I'm happy to be proved wrong about that, but it it's interests me how many times um, when I kind of am teaching social workers and I say to them, you know, they bring a concern to me, I say that, you know, challenge authority and actions. If you believe you're being asked to carry out tasks that you feel are not ethical or not in the best interest, then you should really challenge these. And people have said to me, you're one of those radical social workers, aren't you? Which just and means that, social worker, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> to me it does. But, you know, and once again, like I said, I am in no way saying there are no radical social workers. I know there are, but it just felt to me in the 80s that there was a big kind of um, – we were all out in the communities, you know, doing our um, work in patches, and I'm not saying that it was more ethical. It was different, but it certainly felt – uh, more active, more activism, more activism. Is that the right word? Yeah. I think that's right, though, for a, in terms of a kind of a, a particular um, thing to remember, which is that ethical um, changes or ethical kind of um, evolution doesn't necessarily mean ethical progress. Mm. So we, we may actually in some areas be moving away from the most, the best human rights, social justice and professional integrity position. So it's not as if things, you know, change is always good. Yeah. So keeping or, that in or mind. Or the old ways are always best. <laughs> it's, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, I, and I think you touched on it before when you, when you really said, you know, I love this idea of this unnavigated terrain between ours and others' lives. That's why it's so important to listen to the voices of the people we're working with because it's through 
really actively wanting to engage and listen to those voices that we're going to get a proper sense of where social work ethics are working well and and where we might be hitting some rocky shores. So we've talked a bit about how about the um, ethical capability around working in partnership and the actually the ethical capability around questioning and challenging. Um, the the next kind of capabilities are around critically critically reflecting and managing conflicting values and ethical dilemmas. And there, I think we have um, we have some really useful developments around the absolute kind of uh, um, emphasis of the importance of critical reflection and supervision and the people having supervision and social workers having supervision with other social workers um, and peer support but also we've got some real challenges haven't we in practice around time and pressure and seeing people and that's even more of an issue right now when we're in the middle of this pandemic um, but you know the, the example for me of, of that kind of critical reflection is is people who pause before they before they give a response um and also the recognition of their own place in it that's something that i struggled with when i started out as a social worker i still struggle with the um the the tension between being professional and actually acknowledging that you have a personal position here as well Mm. and that your professionalism isn't um objective so yeah and that's why supervision is so important isn't it because we don't know our blind spots. That's why they're called blind spots. And you can rush into things feeling entirely justified in what you're doing. And it's being able to have that critical friend to kind of really rigorously question and explore um, your rationale that's so helpful. Um, and that's one of the things I was interesting. I, I said to you that I was um, I was on another call this morning doing my uh, return to social work stuff with um, James Blewett, and one of the things he was saying was that in the in the COVID nineteen um, crisis that we have, more than ever, social workers need to use supervision, and they need to be talking through and thinking very carefully and critically about the decisions that they're having to make because they're making them on much more limited information than they used to make them on before. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And the um, and the other kind of areas of capability are how we use um, the policies and procedures and things that we're given, but also how we are accountable. And I think that these ones bring, in, bring to the fore the issue of competing roles you know that if I was a social worker working um, with adults for a local authority maybe seconded to an NHS trust National Health Service trust um, you know in a particular team I might have government local government NHS and citizen and community and team kind of priorities which Uh would potentially have slightly different ethical stances and views and that I mean that's something that is is at the very heart you know from the first day that you go you start your social work course it's what's talked about isn't it it's the competing um roles and the um the difficulty of managing the stakeholders that you have um that's a kind of really important ethical dance isn't it 
It is, and I think I think then that comes down to, doesn't it, the ability that you have to um, make sure that you can demonstrate what it is that you're doing and that's that you know that capability that helps us to demonstrate the confident application of ethnical reasoning reasoning to our practice um, making sure that we're looking at all the rights and entitlement and that we're questioning and challenging others using that leg, legal and human rights framework and um, I was thinking of this about a contact between children and parents siblings and other family members you know that it's so important to really triangulate what the current law is saying about contact between family members, the rights and responsibility of each person to listen to each viewpoint, support them to think about each other, imagine the child's whole life instead of just here and now, then check yours and own, your own and other biases, make sure that you don't have any blind spots in your thinking wherever possible, you know, really um, be up for challenge. And then finally, make a really accurate record of all of the elements that influence the final decision. Write it clearly. Make sure all the people impacted on understand and they've contributed fairly and then provide all people with the resources to make a complaint or a challenge should they want to. So I kind of stepped through that and I thought, well, that to me, if I did those things in that decision, I would feel that that was an ethical decision, that it had been it was open to scrutiny and to challenge and that I used all the reasoning possible to, to get to a place. And I think that's really important. Yeah, I think that probably brings together all of these capabilities, doesn't it? Because it allows us to um, explain our ethical position. And one of the things, the other thing that I wanted to mention was about kind of ethical stress, which is goes back to what I said at the start about ethics not necessarily giving you a clear answer or if they do give mm. you a clear answer you're not actually necessarily being able to to follow it um so you, you know you're stumbling around in a swamp and you recognize that it's not firm ground and you can see some over there you might not be able to get to it um mm. so that causes a lot of stress I think the un both the uncertainty and the unknown and also the the, the difficulties of actually being the, maybe the ethical beings that we want to be and so one of you know, what you've just talked about, about working through what's possible and being clear and explaining ourselves and having that sort of human integrity of owning what we can do um, and the fact that it's imperfect. Um, mm -hmm. But that, that, that's because of, you know, you know taking, because we're taking, it's taking place in messy circumstances. I think it does help us to manage the stress as well and the uncertainty. Um, because one of the things you can have a certain amount of control over is how you um, how you present yourself and your thinking and how you explain yourself. Yeah, and I think for me, some of the things that helps are, are really knowing clearly what your professional guidance says. So, you know, understanding what the code of ethics say um, and having them around you so that you can refer to them, understanding your policy and procedures and, and you know, making sure that you're reading um, from authors and influencers in our field and really thinking about their different arguments and stances so that we can keep allowing our ethics to evolve because, as you've pointed out, they're not they're not stagnant, are they? They're not trapped in one thing. 
And the other thing is then being able to have someone that you can critically reflect with. And I've got to say, Jerry, that that's one of the things I love about doing this podcast with you. Me too. Is, is, is that actually this is just such a space for me to really try and think about what I'm trying to achieve as a social worker and what I'm trying to achieve as a person and whether they're whether that's congruent or not. And I've learned heaps of things over the years that we've been doing this. Um, Co-production, I just find that helpful and challenging and all sorts of wonderful things. But at the end of the day, if you can work authentically and as honestly as you can with people who have either used our system or been involved in our system, then I think that you're going to have a much better chance of behaving as fairly and ethically as you can. We really need to understand our role, what our purpose is, how much power we have in each situation and where our authority comes from. And not only do we need to understand that, but we need to make sure everyone else does too. Um, and we need to be really quite honest about that, how much power we have and don't have, all those kind of things. And then the end, accountable communication. Um, and for me, that that is about making good records because at the end of the day, what we say won't always be remembered, although sometimes it is and sometimes it's helpful, sometimes it's taken out of context. But we have to capture enough meaning to allow people to be able to scrutinise things in the longer term because many of the things we do – impacts on people for their whole life and sometimes on generations beyond. And there's, a, there's two tools that I think are, that I love that really help me. So um, the first is, is critical reflection using ethics. It's essentially the cold cycle, but instead of saying, um, thinking of it as kind of generally, general questions is thinking about you as an ethical being. So what's happening for me right now ethically? Um, what's impacting on my ethics and values or how my ethics and values impacting on others um what's the ethical meaning of the situation that i find myself in for me or for other people and then um as an ethical agent what should i do so just really kind of bringing it into um either the, bringing the, fo the focus absolutely onto the ethics mm. um and then the other thing is the discrepancy matrix which i am so grateful to my children and families colleagues for introducing me to so this um this helps you sift out um firm ground ambiguous information assumptions and missing information so you can really understand what kind of evidence you're holding is oh, it yeah. like stuff you can rely on or is it stuff that you, you can't, it isn't clear or there's gaps or wait you know the, the, the assumptions section sifting out assumptions is so valuable because then you can explore them can't you and understand what values underpin those assumptions i agree with you i just think it's jane wanacott's discrepancy matrix best tool ever and for me fantastic in supervision mm. and and also in multi-agency discussions because we don't realize how much our own personal bias and experience blurs the weighting we put on different facts or different pieces of information until we actually examine that information rigorously for value. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, and, and it's just, it's a fantastic tool to have. I like the ethical reflection. I haven't done that before, but I have a feeling that I might be getting an opportunity to run through it very soon. So, and, and perhaps we could end with, with two reflective questions for people. Um, if values reflect what matters or what is important to us, then how do we counter the bias and the preferences we have? And if ethics relate to habit, custom and culture, how do we build good habits and customs?